Good evening. Nice to see you all. Nice to be with you again. You are troopers. Uh, we're getting near the end of Lent, which is wonderful. And um, some of you have put up with me for four weeks, and that's just amazing. I don't try that, St. Stephen's. I don't, I don't speak four weeks in a row. Um, I like that, uh, that old song, I want to be like Jesus in my heart, in my heart. Lord, I want to be like Jesus in my heart. Um, we're going to talk about that tonight, about being like Jesus in our heart. To help us get started, I'm, I'm pulling in some heavy-duty theology. So we're going to start out with Calvin and Hobbes. My, my apologies to Ben Watterson, who, who went into retirement. It was a sad day when Ben Watterson retired about, what, 25 years ago or something like that. He stopped doing these things. He's still around. He lives close to where I grew up over in Ohio. Anyway, it would be great if he started doing it. Okay, so Calvin and Hobbes, here we go. Need one more over here, please? Hands up if you need one. So the first panel, uh, Watterson always does this. His, his first panel or two have nothing to do with the rest of the cartoon. Um, but the, the, the first panel is uh, here. This is Calvin and Hobbes at the top of a snow-covered hill. Here we are at the top of Dismemberment Gorge, ready to go down. I love Calvin. He's always going down someplace like that. Uh, how about if I steer this time? Get on, you big sissy. So they're on the sled heading down the hill. I've been good all day so far, Calvin offers. Christmas is getting near, huh, says Hobbes. You got it, says Calvin. I've been wondering, though, if it, tr if, though, is it be truly being good if the only reason I behave well is so I can get more loot at Christmas? I mean, really, all I'm doing is saying I can be bribed. <laughs> is that good enough, or do I have to be good in my heart and my spirit? Crash into the tree. In other words, do I really have to be good, or do I just have to act good? Well, Hobbes offers, uh, I suppose in your case, Santa will have to take what he can get. <laughs> And Calvin says, okay, Calvin, ever ready to make a deal on this issue? So exactly how good do you think I have to act? I mean, really good or just pretty good? <laughs> that um, there is a couple thousand years of religious history behind that, quest, behind that cartoon. I mean, that's really um, pretty well put, I think by Mr. Watterson, by our friend Calvin. So the answer is that God wants to make us good all the way down. Nothing less than that. All the way down, all the way through, he wants to make us good. Not only does he want to make us good, but he promises to make us good. He doesn't just demand it of us, he gives it to us and grows it in us. And th we're talking over... Um, over these weeks about how that happens, the directions that takes. And tonight we're going right to the heart of the matter, uh, right into the middle of it. Uh, I said to you last week that when I did my last sabbatical, I went back to the patristic era, the early church era, and tried to understand how they made disciples um, because I was worried about how we make disciples and whether we were missing something that they could see. And I found a couple of points of focus that are not what I now call the down direction and the in direction that were uh, a constitutional part of ancient discipleship and which are almost always missing from modern discipleship. The down direction being that you get over yourself, you give up your life in order to find your life, you renounce your life, you, you, make, you make repentance a, a friend for life. It's an ongoing manner of life, repentance is, for us. And the indirection that we're looking at tonight is that you pay attention to your heart because your heart is the center of your life. Everything you do flows out of your heart. So we guard it, we keep our hearts, we attend to our hearts, we seek the renovation of the heart, Dallas Willard's well-written book uh, by that title from Christ. And we're going to talk about that tonight. So the indirection is what we're, um, what we're on to tonight. 
I don't think that you can be a wholehearted, I was going to say disciple, uh, without being attentive to your heart. That, um, I don't think you can be a healthy disciple of Jesus if you miss the down direction and miss the indirection in your life. I think it will make you vulnerable, um, weak in your faith, weak in your walk with the Lord. You'll open yourself up to all kinds of difficulties and challenges and, um, and find some things inside you that never get healed um, because you're not being attentive to your heart or you're not being um, attentive enough to the issue of repentance or, um, or letting go of your old life the down direction and the indirection. I think the recovery of the down direction and the indirection is very, a very important project for contemporary discipleship. In your church, in my church, in, in, uh, in Jesus-loving, Bible-believing churches like ours. So that's why I put it right in the middle of what we're doing. So some framework thoughts here. I've got these, I've got some notes for you. I'm going to, you've got in your hand the highlights of what I'm going to say tonight. You're free to fill in, of course. Uh, but some framework thoughts there at the bottom of the first page or on the top of the second page. The heart is the center of the human self. We'll come back to that issue. What is the heart? It's a very important issue. Uh, the heart is spiritual in nature. And it is the source of your life. It's the source of human life and human action. We'll come back to that thought. That means that human beings run from the inside out. You are an inside-out critter. That's how you live. It's how you act. What's in your heart does come out. We'll come back to that issue tonight. And then that means if you, if you get to the heart, your whole life can be changed. And if you don't get to the heart, your whole life will not be changed. You'll just have something on the outside that doesn't penetrate to the inside. And the heart is caught. The heart is in a difficult place. It's caught in bondage to sin. It's beyond its capacity to escape. It's the primary object of our redemption. The heart is the primary object of Christ's redemption in our life. And it takes an outside power to liberate the heart. Bigger than you. Bigger than me. This is not something you or I are capable of doing. All right. So those are some thoughts, just some opening thoughts to whet your appetite. We'll come back to them. I want to uh, go back to uh, Luke chapter 8 and take you through a very familiar uh, parable. It's one of the first parables that Jesus told. It's the story about the sower and uh, the seed and those four soils. Um, but of course, Jesus is not talking about farming or gardening. He's talking about not soils, but souls. He's talking about your soul and my soul uh, when he uses this illustration of soils. So what is your soul? The soul is like your heart. It is the center of your life that guides your life. Jesus is teaching in this parable about what kind of soul is able to receive his kind of life. That's what the parable is about. And he's got four souls here that he has a thought about. So the first soul is, um, is a hard one, someone that, uh, a soil that's hard. So some seed fell along the path, it was trampled underfoot, the birds of the air devoured it. And he tells us in verse 12 that those are people who've heard, then the devil comes along and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. So that first soil is the footpath. It's, um, it's uh, easy to understand how the footpath would get hard. The footpath got too hard because people were walking on it all the time. You will get too hard if people walk on you all the time. If you have a life like that, if you've had a season of life like that, it can make you very hard. It, it can make you um, so hard that nothing can get through to you. Nothing can get into you. If people are walking all over you, you'll get bitter or you'll get angry or cynical. Uh, you'll get to the point where you don't care anymore, where you just blow people, you just say, whatever, kind of life. The saying, I, I, I think it's from um, Alcoholics Anonymous, but I'm not entirely sure of it, is hurt people hurt people. That's how it goes. And that's how it will go for you, too, if 
people are walking on you all the time. I have another way you can get hard. You can get hard by thinking you're better than everybody else. And so you look down on people around you. You just think, God, you know, they don't measure up or something like that. And then you can get to the point where you don't care anymore. That's, that's what happened to me when I, I was in the radical left back in my 20s. Um, was we, we really thought we knew what was going on. And we were looking down on everybody. We thought we were better than everybody else. And it made us really hard. It made me so hard that I went for a full decade without ever crying once. I came to Christ over that decade. I saw lots of things happen over that decade that would make me weep now, but it didn't make me weep then. I, it was because my heart was tough and hard and small, and I wasn't actually capable of crying. It took a lot before I got around that. I still work on getting around that. It's been a lifetime condition for me. That can happen to you if you're arrogant and you think you're better than everybody. It can give you a hardness of heart disease. And then you look down on people around you. And then along comes the sower. The sower throws seed all over the path. Isn't that interesting? You would think the guy was a rookie. You would think he had no idea what he was doing. If he was working for me on my farm, I'd drag him out and chew him out, probably, for wasting all that seed that he threw all over the path. But that's what this sower does. He puts seed everywhere. Some people call the sower uh, careless. They would go on later in his ministry to call him wasteful, extravagant, St. Paul's word for him is lavish in his love. He doesn't mind wasting seed, it seems. He throws it everywhere, even in the hardest places. See that picture I've got there, that first picture I've got? That's what one seed can do. I love that picture. That's a gospel picture for me. I just found that snooping around the internet for rocks and trees and seeds and acorns and stuff like that and found that picture. That, that is one seed that found a crack. That's all a seed, his seed, needs is a crack. Just one crack. And a little bit of nutrition and a little bit of uh, moisture and it's off and running and it can break open the hardest heart. We'll come back to that thought. Okay. If you're a hard soul, soil, soul. <laughs> and the sower comes around, watch out. Watch out. You're in a little bit of danger when he starts casting his seed. There's a second kind of soul that is shallow. So this is the shallow soil on top of hard rock. It got off to a good start. Everybody was excited and enthusiastic. And then Jesus says the enthusiasm doesn't go very deep. It's only another fad. And the moment there's trouble, they're gone. They're out of here. You and I live in a culture that majors in minors. We love things that don't matter and don't last very long. Richard Foster once said that superficiality is the curse of our age. I think he's right. I think, he, I think he's right. Your soul needs something more than the next thrill or the next fad. One of the things that has uh, bothered me to death about being a pastor is to find your church, get into a, a zone or something like that where next week's service has got to be hotter than last week's service. And if you're in that, it'll kill you as a, as a team leader, as, as a worship team, as a planning team, if that's what has to happen. And if that's what has to happen to you to keep you engaged in the Lord, that, that it's got to be hotter this week than it was, cooler, um, more powerful this week than it was last week, um, you're going to find out that the moment hard times come, you're likely to be gone. Life goes deeper than, than the shallows. I wonder where you found that out in your life. I, I think um, the first place I found that out probably after my conversion was when Becca said yes to me. Uh, her yes to me changed my life. 
pointed me in a different direction. I couldn't believe what a, what a lucky guy I was. <laughs> her yes to me became an echo of Jesus' yes to me. And her yes to me, um, I, I don't, I never understood it. She's not here, so I can tell this story on her. Um, I never understood why she loved me like she did. She loved me deeply from the moment we met, and it's never stopped. She was kind to me when I was tough with her. I was a tough guy. I was a tough guy. She, and she responded to that by being kind to me by being patient with me, by being sweet to me, by caring for me, by having a real affection for me. It became like God's can opener around my heart. I mean, I describe it that way. It was what happened to me. That was how that rock, that seed, uh, she was the seed that God uh, put down into that hard soil of my heart. It was was his kindness through her um, that, that cracked my heart. That's really true in my life. That can happen to you if you're, if, you're, if you're shallow. You can all of a sudden find out that life goes a whole lot deeper than you had any idea of. And it can happen in a marriage. I remember when my first son was born, and um, I've got lots of kids, so I got six kids, and when my first one was born, and they put him on my lap, and I was in the recovery room with Beck, and and this little guy was uh, just under six pounds. He was a tiny little fella. He could hardly hold his head up. His head flopped. He didn't have the strength to hold. I thought, we're in trouble. And I'm looking down at this little guy. And all of a sudden, he opens his eyes, and he looks up at me. And I'm looking down at him. And there's this overwhelming love that begins to rush back and forth between me and this little boy. And I thought, oh my goodness. The Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father. And all of a sudden, I caught sight of something that was way, way, way bigger than this dad and his first son. And life got very deep. That can happen to you in a moment. I was totally surprised by that. I I mean, I've got a a litany of things like that through my life where all of a sudden the bottom drops out and and the heavens open up and you are in something far bigger than you ever... You were not made to live a shallow life. You were made to live a profoundly deep kind of life. Deep calls to deep, as David wrote in Psalm 42. The depths of God call to the depths of you. There are some souls that are choked. So this is soil that is soft and deep, and the seed made a good start, but then it was choked, we're told in verse 14, by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and it had no chance to mature. That's somebody with a cluttered soul. That's somebody who thinks that we can, we can say yes to God and then say yes to everything else around us too. You can't do that. It will not work. Uh, pastors who, um, who really think we have to make everybody happy get caught in this because we want people to be happy in church. We do. We really want them to be doing well. And so we can get into people-pleasing. You can get into people-pleasing. And you don't want to say anything difficult anytime to anybody. And so you try and keep the peace or something like that. We call that enabling. When it gets really out of control, it can be really difficult and damaging. So, so you're, you're trying to say yes to everything and anything and everybody. That's like trying to grow everything in your garden at the same time. So you plant your seeds in the garden, then you just let it go. And I've noticed, I've got gardens. Um, Beck and I have three raised bed gardens. And when we plant the seeds and they start to sprout and we leave them alone, just let everything grow. Did you notice that the weeds win every single time? There's no, I don't get it. I totally don't get it. But they do. The weeds outgrow all the veggies and, and take them over. You can't have the love of Jesus on your lips and the love of the world in your heart. You have to tend your heart. It's God's garden. You have to pull the weeds. We have all this clutter and all this stuff, and we think it's our life, but it's not our life. Your soul is really hungry for God. 
And along comes the sower and his seed, and you see him, and soon enough you find out that nothing else matters but him. I love the way one person said it once. I can't remember who. Uh, With him, nothing is more than enough. Without him, everything is not nearly enough. Jesus really does satisfy your heart like nothing else will ever do. I want to introduce you to a saint that you probably don't know. That's a, the picture there is an icon that my wife painted a couple of years ago of Saint Seraphim of Serov. He was a Russian who he died uh, in the early 1800s, 1833 he died. He was raised, so he's a modern saint, he's not an ancient saint. He was raised in a devout home um, and at the age of 19, he became a monk in Russia. He was tasked with the management of the monastery because he was really good at it, but he did not like it. And he felt that the worries of the monastery were overwhelming him in his life. And so by the time he was 37, he worked out uh, permission from the abbot. He'd been a monk then for about 20 years. He worked out permission from the abbot to retire to the forest and uh, to go into um, prayer, a solitary life of prayer. He's hunched over in, um, in the uh, um, picture, in the painting, um, because uh, he was robbed and beaten and left for dead, and it, it permanently disfigured him. Um, the, hunch was, uh, the hunchback was real in his life. He attended the trial of his attackers, and he begged for their forgiveness. They, they thought he was hiding gold in the forest. They thought this monk out there in the forest was hiding gold, and so they, they sacked his place looking for it, couldn't find it. He didn't have a thing. What happened was about the time that he was 60 years old, he began to receive people into his hermitage who would, uh, who would come out on a pilgrimage to, to meet him, and people who met him began to notice that when he spoke to them, God seemed to speak to them. I wonder if you've ever known anybody like that. That when you speak to them, it seems, and they speak to you, it seems like God is speaking through them with some real consistency. That happened with him. God often healed through him. Lots of people who came out to him um, were healed. The Lord healed them. Wild animals loved him. There are stories about bears, wild bears and St. Seraphim. Dozens and, and then hundreds of people saw it as consuls. Word got out. Now the guy's, at this time, he's older than 60. Um, uh, so he's my age or something like that. Russian nobility, really old guy. Russian nobility uh, began to make, think of wild animals and the, who loved him. The Russian nobility came out to see him. You know, all, all those guys who were who were really privileged, the elite, uh, began to come out to see him, speaking of wild animals. He had a famous sentence that he's very well known for. Uh, I've got it down there for you. Acquire the spirit of peace and the thousand souls around you will be saved. That's what happens when God comes to a cluttered life. He can give you a peace that is so profound and so real that it spills out all over the place. And people are hungry for it, desperate for it. Some souls are good. So that's the last soil. Uh, As for that in the good soil, Jesus tells us, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. That fourth soil is deep, it is soft, it is well watered, the garden is weeded. There's nothing complicated about what's going on here. This simple little phrases like, hold it fast. That means the soil welcomes the seed. It, it envelops it, it treasures it, it makes room for it. it. It is glad for the seed to be dropped on it. It means... You, you trust it. You give it room. You respond to it. it. It means you keep at it. You keep at it. You, you don't just, um, yep, gave my life to Jesus, 
boom, I'm on to something else now, or and expect that everything is going to be different from that point on. You keep at it. You keep welcoming him, his word, his life. I like the, um, the passage from Proverbs 4, that this is a heart that treasures the word, makes room for his word, his seed, his gospel, his, his gospel. And, and they keep at it. Note that little phrase at the end, with patience, with patience. So you don't give up. Even when it's a hard season or a dry season um, or a weedy season or a discouraging season, you don't give up. You do not give up. You keep at it. So let me ask you a question. How's your soul It's a good question. Do you find yourself hard or shallow or cluttered or good soil? How's the soil of your soul? It's a very important question. Jesus is telling us with uh, this parable to be attentive to your heart. That's the indirection. To be attentive to your heart. Think about questions like this. Ponder them. Be honest with yourself about them. So that's an introduction to the indirection of the Christian life. I want to dig into it a little bit more. And we're going to take our cue from uh, Calvin and his friend uh, Hobbes and uh, go back to this issue about what does it mean to be a good person? Uh, what, what kind of goodness does the Lord want in us and what kind of goodness does the Lord give to us and how does that happen? So that's a big question, actually. You might not know this, but that question of who is a good person goes way, way back in, in the history of, um, of Western civilization, all the way back to the Greeks, all the way back to Plato and Socrates and Aristotle and people like that. They had a lot to say about that. Um, the answers that people gave to that question of who is a good person are basically the same answers that we get still today. So a good person, ancient people and modern people would agree, is somebody who does good. Or a good person is somebody who looks good. Or a good person is somebody who has it good. So there's a behavioral answer to this question. There's um, a, 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 um, uh, uh, an appearance answer to this question, and there is a circumstantial answer to this question. You have it good. You know, things are going your way. Um, so you were born into the right place, the right family, or have the right job, or um, go to the right school, or something like that. You have it good. Um, people think, well, that's what makes a good person. Jesus got into this discussion, and when he got into this discussion, he taught something that took the apple cart and turned it upside down. He really um, turned this discussion over. And he did it by using a, a particular word in a conversation with particular people. Um, the word you will recognize really quickly. Uh, and he was going after people who had the appearance of being good, but who really weren't good, who had the circumstances of being good, but who really weren't good. So Jesus says in response to this question, you can look good, have it good, people can think you're good, and even give the appearance of doing good and still be a mess on the inside. So the way he said it was this. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly to take the speck that's in your brother's eye. The word is, you might want to circle, I think I've underlined it for you, is what? Hypocrite. Hypocrite. So Jesus is the only one who uses this word in the New Testament. It's a Jesus word. He uses it 16 times in his teachings, and nobody else uses it. Yeah, he didn't invent the word. He borrowed it. He borrowed it from the ancient Greek world. It was a theater word. Um, it, it actually meant somebody who was pretending to be somebody who they're not. And in theater, that's a good thing. 
That's what you're supposed to do in theater. You pretend to be somebody, you're an actor, you're doing, you're pretending you're someone that you're not. And to do that, you know, um, in, in uh, public, uh, on a stage, is great. People love it. Um, but to do it private, you know, or to do it at home, or do it somewhere else, that's different. That's different. It's what you expect in a the theater. It's not what you expect in life. So Jesus says, who's a good person? Well, not the Pharisees, Jesus said repeatedly. Not the Pharisees, because they're one thing on the outside and they're something altogether on the inside. They like to make a show of their religion when people are watching, but their hearts are a mess. They like to lay out the rules for everybody to keep, but they won't lift a single finger to help people walk the path. They want to give you the impression that they're better than you, but they're not, Jesus said. He had pretty sharp language for him. He called them whitewashed tombs and things like that. So what Jesus is saying is that if goodness is going to be real in our lives, it's got to go deep. Because you go deep. Goodness has to go as deep as you go. A shallow goodness, a surface goodness, a superficial goodness isn't going to work. It won't make it. The heart itself must become good. Actually, Jesus doesn't just demand that. He promises that. The heart will come, become good. He's going to get us there. He promises to get us there. Now, we jump into that, and I want to just stop for a minute and have you give me uh, some definitions of the heart. So when I say, th uh, you're, you're uh, thinking like an American, all right? Just think like an American here for a minute. It won't be hard for us to think like Americans. Um, so what do we mean when we say, my heart. What do, we, what do we mean when we say that? My dreams, yeah, my thoughts, my uh, aspirations, my fantasies, my um, uh, objectives. Say it again. My emotions, my feelings. Right. My what? What I cherish. Yeah, what I have affection for, right? We do mean that by it, yeah. Right. I think it's mostly in the area of those first two answers that what most of us mean, that my, my vision, my passion, my dream, my passion, we might say that, my heart, um, or, um, or my feelings. Um, and uh, so the way the Bible uses the word heart is different than that. It means something far bigger than that and far deeper than that. So the word heart in the Bible is actually a locational phrase. It does not mean that organ that pumps blood in the middle of our bodies. It means that organ that's at the center of us. The word heart means your core. It means um, your executive center, your, um, uh, your CPU, if you happen to be a computer, um, your, uh, what, what drives everything else inside you. So your heart is the core of you, the center of you. I like those words better because um, people like us, Americans like us, we don't then go straight to feelings or straight to my dreams or something like that when I use the word heart. So your heart actually lives in close collaboration with your mind and your body and your emotions and your feelings and your dreams, your uh, imagination. Um, your rational capacities and your imagination, it lives in close collaboration with your will and your spirit. The heart is greater than them all, underlies them all, and holds them all together. It's the center of you, the core of you. So here's Jesus teaching about the heart. This is Luke 6. No good tree bears bad fruit. Nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is known by its own fruit. The good person out of the good treasure in his heart produces good. The evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So you're an inside-out operation. What's in your heart is how you will act is what you will say. How you will act and what you will say. So if the tree is good, it bears good fruit. If the heart is good, it'll show up in how you live and who you are. And if it's not, that'll show up in how you live and who you are too. So 
What you see on the outside in somebody's life is a good reading of what there really is on the inside. I think Jesus is saying that the way we live, not just for the next 10 minutes, because I can, I, can, I can put on a good front for the next 10 minutes. I, can put on, I found I can put on a really good front for an hour and a half on Sunday morning. I'm really, I'm really pretty, I've gotten pretty good at that, okay? So we can do that. You can override what's in your heart and make a super effort in order to impress people or persuade people or something like that. But if you stick with me for 30 days or, or 40 days, and you take, you know, the sum total of how I've lived and what I'm doing and how I'm behaving, you'll get a good view of my heart. I won't be able to, to keep it up for 40 days. You'll, you'll see the real me in that amount of time. That's what Jesus is saying. So if, if my heart's a mess, I'm going to be a mess on the outside. If I'm a mess on the outside, it's because my heart's a mess. If I'm angry on the outside, it's because I have an angry heart. If I'm unforgiving or bitter, or if I'm covetous, it's because my heart is covetous. If the outside is good, it's because something's made my heart good. That's how we work. That's who we are. So the heart must become good. And when the heart becomes good, it always works its way out in how we live and who we are. Now, I want to give you three quick thoughts on the renovation of the heart here, and then, uh, and then we can talk about anything you want to talk about. So the first one is your focus. Be attentive to the health of your heart. I, I just don't think there's any way our hearts get healed or our hearts change without us being attentive to them. It's a, it's a cooperative project of the gospel. The healing of your heart is a cooperative project of the gospel between God and you. This is a Dallas Willard phrase. You cannot do it without him. He will not do it without you. He requires our involvement for our hearts to be healed. If, if we're going to get over being hard and shallow and cluttered, you got to get in the game. You got to work with the Lord. You got to you got to follow Him. You got to trust Him. You got to do the kinds of things that He gives you to do. We can talk about some of that. So, it's like a garden. Don't let the weeds grow there. Uh, just let me say some stiff things to you. Don't mess around with temptation. Don't. There's no reason to. Turn away from it. Whatever kind of temptation has a pull on you, and some have some and others have others, don't get close to temptation. Watch out for hypocrisy. Don't brag or boast or spin or inflate. I, I find myself all the time when people ask me how it's going at church, I give them an answer that's 5 to 10% better than it really is. I have done that for years. I don't know. You know, you'd think I'd get over that by now. You really would think I'd get over that by now. Every time I catch myself doing it again, I just go, oh, there's no need to do stuff like that. Watch out for your heart. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Watch out for anger and bitterness and unforgiveness. Make sure that God's forgiveness and thankfulness have lots of room in your heart, lots and lots of room in your heart. Tend the garden of your heart. Guard it, Proverbs says. Guard it. It's that important. Okay, be attentive to your heart. Number two, um, this is not a project that you do alone. Even if you have to be involved, if you and I have to be involved in this, it's not something that we're able to do alone. So, we're trying to learn how to do this in community. Um, be attentive to your heart. Now, this is tricky. Uh, we have two places where we are learning how to do this. And um, Jonathan is familiar with both of these. He's been in one of these kind of groups with me. That's the first one. We have community small groups. So we have a dozen small groups in our parish that are in what I call our discipleship community. And in these small groups, we do something that I've never done anywhere else. We do what we call log-ins. 
So a login is where, um, where one member of the group in weekly rotation can speak at length about how he or she is doing in the four directions, up, down, in, or out, all four of them. You go around, you go around the four directions, and you just tell people how you're doing. And the group listens to you. They're not allowed to say anything. And in the small groups, we have a no-fixing rule. You're not allowed to fix anybody. No one is allowed to give advice to anybody else in the small groups when they're, when they're sharing like this. That makes it safe. After you're in a group like this for nine months or a year, uh, it takes nine months or a year, but when you're in a group like that for nine months or a year, people talk about anything. These are gender segregated groups, um, and people do talk about anything and everything. Our conversations uh, a couple of years in these small groups are wonderfully honest. And they're all in the context of pursuing Christ-likeness of life. It's not just how bad it is or how difficult it is or how good it is or anything. It, it's, the groups have one purpose, to help people towards Christ-likeness of life. And we have a curriculum. We use our curriculum here. You're getting a taste of it. Uh, we have a two-year curriculum in this. So I like, we're trying to build groups that are two things, safe and redemptive at the same time. Safe for you to talk about who you really are and healing because we're going to stick together, we're going to pray for each other, we're going to keep to the curriculum, we're going to keep moving towards Christ-likeness of life. And we do get healed. We actually do get healed. But no fixing. No fixing allowed along the way. Um, I've lived most of my Christian life in, I've been in small groups wherever I've, um, wherever I've lived as a Christian. I've never been in small groups like this until we built small groups like this. So in most of the small groups where I live, where, I, where I've been, and where I've started them in churches where I've worked, is uh, we do what everybody does in small groups. We get eight to 10 or 12 people together, um, and we read the Bible, we pray, we take the Bible seriously, uh, we study it, we pray together, we fellowship together, people share a little bit about how they're doing, we pray for one another, um, and then we'll um, have uh, cookies and coffee or something like that, or you know, some kind of, some kind of um, hospitality. And, and small groups like that are really good. They get you to a point and not farther. What I began to notice was that in groups like that, way down the road, you're now five months or five years down the road in a group like that, and people really do have affection for each other. Um, but there's a lot of stuff that's happening under the table that can't come out on top of the table. It just can't. There's a, it just can't. It doesn't. Occasionally it does. And maybe you've been in a group where it does, which is wonderful, especially if it's safe and nobody's trying to fix you all the time when you do share something that's hard or difficult in your life. But to have groups where people can be honest about who they really are. So I'm a, I'm a pastor. I've now been a pastor um, 35 years and 38 years now, getting on. And, um, and I have an ax that I grind. Jonathan's heard me grind this way too much. And that is that in my 38 years of being a pastor, I have never once had a person who's in supervisory authority over me who's come to me and sat me down and said, I want to know how you're really doing. It has not happened. People say, how are you doing? And I get that all the time from lots of people. But no, if you want to know how I'm doing, how I'm really doing, here's what you have to do. You have to, get, you have to sit down with me for an hour and a half, and you have to convince me that it's safe to talk and that you care about me. And then you have to ask me, tell me how your faith is going with the Lord. Tell me how it's really going. What are the hard things? What are the good things? Where are you stuck? You have to ask me questions like that. I'll talk if you ask me questions like that. Where, where are you making progress? And, and tell me about your marriage and, and your family. I, you know, I, I care about my wife and my kids more than anything in the world. Um, if you want to really know how it's going, though, you're going to have to, you're going to, have to take time to ask me and, and listen carefully and not try to fix me on the way. 
say, well, well you've been married to Beck now for 40 years. What have, have been the really wonderful times for you? What have been the hard times for you? What do you wish was more true uh, in your marriage with Beck than, than you've yet found together? How could you love her more deeply? How, how would you like to love her more deeply um, than you already do? If you ask me questions like that and you give me time and it's safe, I'll, I'll, tell me about your kids. You got six kids, Jeff. How are they doing out there? You got 19 grandkids. Tell me about your grandkids. What are, the, what are the challenges that they face? We're now about two-thirds of the way through this conversation. And then if you're, if you're uh, going to do this with me, ask me how my ministry's going. Ask me how the church is going. Where do you get stuck? What do you love? What's getting old? What's lost its uh, passion for it? See, my point in, in this is Americans have no, no one to listen to them. We do not listen to each other anymore. We don't. We live in a world that's moving so fast. And it's, it's not just me. It's you. I know this. It's you too. It's not just me. And, and we don't take time for each other. We don't have heart for each other. And it's not safe oftentimes when we try to speak about where we really are and what, what, what's really going on in our lives. The church ought to be a place where we can know one another and be known by one another and love each other in that context and love each other in Jesus in that context. So we're trying to build small groups that can actually do this. And we found a way of doing it. We're actually onto something. We're finding a way of doing this. So we're working on it. Okay. The other thing that I do is every two months I go for spiritual direction. So you see that funny picture there of me with a couple of monks? Um, that is uh, Archbishop uh, Melchizedek, who is the Archbishop of uh, my last sabbatical. Um, I went to Bishop Duncan and I said, you know, I want to go back to the early church and live like they lived in the early church, but they had spiritual directors and I don't have a spiritual director. Can you help me? He took me up to meet Archbishop Melchizedek. I've met with him now every two months for the last three and a half years. I met with him 50 times over the last three years. We speak for two hours. Uh, I, I said to him, I said, I have no idea where to start when we started talking together. Um, he said, you can start wherever you want. We'll get to everything. <laughs> we have gotten to everything. We have gotten to everything. He knows everything. He knows everything about my life that I've never quite been able to tell anybody else, um, perhaps with the exception of my wife. He knows everything. And he stands on the God side of me. And he's become a dear friend, a really dear friend. So you just got to have people like that in your lives. You, you, you do. We're meant to. We're not meant to live this life alone. You can't be attentive to your heart by yourself because your heart is too deceptive. And we're too easily fooled thinking that we're great people, you know, or whatever. And uh, blind to the, you know, as Jesus said, blind to the the log in our own eye, so willing to take the speck out of everybody else's eye. Okay, your worship, one more thing here. Your worship is God's heart clinic. I, I'm just going to give that to you. I've got the headlines there, but I want you to be... A t Thomas Cranmer knew a great deal about the human heart. And when he wrote the Anglican liturgy, once you see it, the frequency of the phrase, your heart... So we begin, um, Almighty God, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by your Holy Spirit. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind and all your soul. And remember I said to you a couple of weeks ago that that is not just a command, that is a promise. You shall. You shall. He's going to get us there. He's going to make men and women like you and me able to love him with all our heart. I want to be like Jesus in my heart. That's a promise. We will be like Jesus in our heart. We will. We really will. You confess, we confess our hearts, divided, misdirected. We have not loved you with our whole heart. After the absolution, we lift up our hearts. That's a big phrase. You're lifting your heart up to the resurrect, crucified and resurrected Lord. And perhaps my favorite phrase of, of the whole worship service is... Um, Feed on him in your hearts by faith. 
I now think of Holy Communion as heart medicine. I think it's the best heart medicine in the world. It heals your hearts. Changes your hearts week after week. Um, I think that worship is a heart clinic. And you begin to see it like that. You come week after week and things begin to happen in your heart. You do get healed and it does go deeper. Okay, I want to finish here with these, going back to my four soils. I have a second question about these four soils. I want to finish with it. So um, you remember it's hard, then shallow, then cluttered, then good, right? So how do you think that last soil became good? I can promise you it didn't start that way. And the moment, not the moment, that I thought about that because I'm trying to be attentive to my own heart. And then I began to think, you know, this parable sounds like a familiar story. A heart that was hard and then got a little bit deeper, uh, a little bit broken up, and then it was shallow, but then it got a little deeper, and then it got cluttered, and then it got weeded and became good. I think this is the story of, of how God takes hearts, and the sower keeps coming back and planting his seed, and a hard heart becomes a little broken up, and a shallow heart becomes deeper, and a weeded, uh, cluttered heart gets weeded. I think that's something of what's going on here. I think that the parable is a promise that, that the sower hasn't given up on you. And no matter what kind of a heart you have, he's going to get you from here to there until your heart's good, all the way down, all the way through. And I think that seed that, that he plants is his life given for you and given to you. And he plants it again and again and again and again and again until the soil finally becomes good and deep and the fruit is 60-fold or 100-fold. That sower loves you. He plants his own life in you. He's given his own life for you. He's not given up on our hearts. Okay. A little bit of encouragement. So, chat for a few minutes. Comments or questions? You might have a question or two about our small group. You can see down here we have a rule of life uh, that, I've, um, that we're working on that has to do with the indirection. Those are some things that uh, we, we like to be attentive to and work on. We're trying to do those things. Um, I've got a lot of notes for you there on exactly what we do in our small groups so that you can kind of wrap your mind around that if you want to wrap your mind around that. Jonathan is fully aware of this dynamic and process and would be a really great coach um, if your small group wanted to move in this direction. And it would be good to have a coach if your small group wanted to move in this direction. So comments, questions, your heart. <clears throat> Um, I th you can see my um, flow sheet for a typical meeting. I've got a little chart there. Do you see that on your page? What page is that on for you? Five, page five has a flow sheet. So I'd take a group, if they wanted to go in this direction, say, let's change your agenda. This takes an hour and 20 minutes, so it's not unusually long or anything like that. The thing is that the Bible study is kept to 25 minutes or something like that, um, and the... Um, and the uh, uh, login is kept to uh, 25 minutes, and it can actually work. So I run groups regularly now on this agenda. Um, and then I would, I would uh, give you some coaching on how to do a login. I'd come and do one myself, so you begin to see. I'd probably, what I do with groups now is um, I'm doing clergy groups like this, and uh, Jonathan was in one, so we met for five months. And we, uh, so I, I in, in my parish, I would meet 
probably weekly with a group for at least a month to get them started on this new agenda. Um, I couldn't meet with groups for five months, but I could meet with them for a month and then coach them afterwards. But the thing is learning uh, to do the law again, and everybody does it. Um, every, everybody, every first three logins that I've heard from people, people make a good faith effort up, down, in, and out. We're a little confused about the language. It takes time to learn what the difference between in and down is, for example. Um, and uh, and um, but the logins after six months get better when people really know they're safe, when people know that they're not going to be gossiped about or fixed, and nobody will gang up on them or something like that. After about six months, the logins get really kind of wonderful, really wonderful. And I, the other thing I would do is I would put in the middle of the group Christ-likeness of life. That's where we're heading. The group has to want to head in that direction. Christ-likeness of life. So holiness would be the holiness. Christ-like life is what we want to grow towards as a group. We're going to be patient with each other. That's another one of our rules. We're going to be patient with each other. I remember once when I was in my first year of marriage, I went to Bishop Stanway and complained to him about my wife. I was such a fool. I was such an idiot. And, and he looked at me. He listened to me for about three or four minutes, and he looked at me, and he said, Jeff, you just be as patient with Becca as God has been with you. And I went, oh, like that. So, oh, I knew this was the wrong thing to say to him. <laughs> So we're going to be patient with each other. God's been very, very patient with us. We're going to be patient with each other. And you can get somewhere over two years that you can't get in three months. You really can. So that's what I would say. I, I would start with a group like that. Does that get at some of the things you're wondering about? Yes? Um, I'm not sure if I have a question in here somewhere, so I'll just talk. That's fine. I had, I had one child like you. <laughs> one out of six. <laughs> My apologies. Uh, and so I was writing down a couple words that, that I resonate more with, uh, which were uh, holy and broken. And when you were saying Christ-like, I think, how, how do we point each other towards Christ-likeness instead of good? Because good is something we can achieve. Um, Christ-likeness is a lot harder than good. It is. Yeah, and good, if you do a capital G on the good, a big good, so goodness all the way down. I'm okay with that. Goodness all the way down is, I'm okay with that definition. But the problem is exactly what Jesus put his finger on, hypocrisy, that we can be good on the outside and look good on the outside and still be a mess on the inside. So um, I think recovering that kind of language and his teaching on hypocrisy and and giving each other space to be honest about what is going on in the inside because even with those of us who look good you know there's kind of some nasty things that cook around on the inside so to give each other compassion and space so that that kind of stuff can be we can be we can find a way to be honest about them in an appropriate way in an appropriate way in, in a group that will really point me towards Christ's healing so is that I like your words. I like your words um, a lot. And there is a problem with the word good. I agree. And it gets at this thing that we're talking about with hypocrisy and a deep down goodness. Good. Good. <laughs> yes. Yep. Morning prayer. This is a morning group. If it was evening, we'd do a brief evening prayer. Yeah. Any more? One more, perhaps, for Jonathan Yanks. She said it's, it works better if they're more gender. Yes. Than mixed. Yes. 
It does work better because um, men will talk about things with men that they will not talk about in front of women. Women will talk, I hear, rumor has it, that, we're, that women will talk with women about things that they will not talk about in front of men. And we want people to be able to talk. I think it is possible to have a, a mixed gender group. We have not yet tried one. Uh, but it's only possible from my point of view if there is spiritual direction available for everybody. And if everybody's got it in, in spiritual direction, so there's somewhere where they can talk about anything they need to talk about, want to talk about, if, they, if it's a little bit restricted in the group. So, all right. Well, I just want to say again, thank you for the honor of welcoming me. Um, we have a great deal of affection for you all and your leadership here at Ascension, and it's a real joy to come over and get a taste of four nights with you all. I think we are working right down the same lines, have been for a long time, and it's been a privilege to work alongside leaders like Jonathan and people like you for the sake of the gospel. Thank you very, very much.